Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. October's over, so I'm going to be switching back to my normal setup, normal music, no more Halloween topics, unless one happens to be requested by someone throughout the rest of the year. But I hope you enjoyed our Halloween special and the Halloween episodes. This week, I'm taking it back to something that's very heavily science-related, and because it's such a big topic and there's so much information, I actually wanted to start off with what I would usually do in the mid-roll. So first, I'm going to talk to you about World Anvil, which is a wonderful sponsor of Nerdsmith, specifically Countless Heroes and several of the other actual play podcasts on the network. It's a fantastic website where you can go and basically world build. So it's fantastic for authors. It's great for dungeon masters who want to really flesh out their world for their players, anything like that. There's different levels of membership you can get, which changes what your options are. But it's amazing, and it's the most advanced world building option out there. Um, The DM for Countless Heroes, Logan, who's also one of the Nerdsmith directors, has done tons of research into trying to find the best world-building option that he could to make sure that we had as much information out there as possible about Vale, the Countless Heroes world. And World Anvil by far was the best one he found out there. The only one that was even slightly better was one that could only be used on your computer and not online at all, which for obvious reasons doesn't work well for most groups that are trying to share information with each other, possibly over long distances. So definitely check out World Anvil. It's amazing. It's worldanvil.com and you can find out more there about all their different options. The other thing I want to talk to you guys about is Nerds Giving. I mentioned it last week and the week before, and I think actually the week before that also, but Nerds Giving is a fundraising event that Nerdsmith is hosting. We've got a bunch of different groups that are involved in it with us, but we're the ones sort of spearheading everything. And we are working to raise money for the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is this amazing organization that has all sorts of programs supporting LGBTQ youth. They have suicide prevention hotlines. They have crisis intervention hotlines. They have a thing they call Trevor Space, which is basically a social media platform specifically for LGBTQ youth between the ages of 13 and 24 so that they can really be with each other and LGBTQ allies in a safe space and not feel threatened. It's an amazing organization, and I definitely recommend you check them out. It's thetrevorproject.org, and they're fantastic. You can learn more about how to donate through Nerds Giving at nerdsmith.org slash nerds dash giving or nerdsmith.org slash trevor. And with that, I'm going to get into this week's topic, which is Henrietta Lacks, who people that are not well-versed in science and scientific studies may not have heard of. But Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman who was born on August 1st, 1920. And her cells would go on to be some of the most important in genetic research and virology research ever. She was born Loretta Pleasant, 
and her mother died when she was about four years old, and her father really wasn't able to take care of her and all her siblings. There were a lot of them. So he ended up taking them home to his family in Clover, Virginia, and basically the family sort of split up the kids in all different households. Henrietta ended up living with her grandfather, Tommy Lax, and no one really knows at what point Loretta Pleasant became known as Henrietta Lax. Granted, this was back in the 1920s. There really was no, you know, documentation about name changes and things like that. Sometimes people would just change their name. So at some point, she became Henrietta Lax, and she lived with her cousin, David Lax, who would later go on to be her husband. She was four and he was nine when they ended up starting to live together. And by all accounts, she grew up surrounded by family and generally had a, I mean, a hard childhood because back then in the 1920s for an African-American woman, life wasn't easy. But she overall was a happy child and a happy young woman and then ended up having her first child at the age of 14. It was just a few months before her 14th birthday and that child's name was Lawrence, and his father was David Lax, the cousin who would go on to become her husband. Their second child was born a few years later. Her name was Lucille Elsie Pleasant, and unfortunately she did have some, not necessarily birth defects, they don't know exactly what caused it, because again, this was so long ago that research into those sorts of issues wasn't as well-funded and wasn't as well done yet. But, um, her family referred to the child as touched, so she definitely had something not developed properly. We just don't know exactly what. We do know she had epilepsy and that she ended up in, unfortunately, in what was referred to at the time as a insane asylum. Or, you know, depending on the person, they might have referred to it as a crazy house or something like that, which obviously we wouldn't do now. But at the time, that's what things were called. And she was married to David in April of 1941. So she was 20 and he was 25 at the time. Also in 1941 is when she ended up moving to Baltimore. So one of her cousins, Fred Garrett, came down from Baltimore. He and other people he knew had made a lot of money working in the steel mills up there. And so he really encouraged Henrietta and her husband to move there to start making more money because life was hard on small farmers. And he bought a ticket for Day, which was David's nickname, to go back to Baltimore with him and then started earning money. And when Fred got drafted into the war, he left his money with David and said, get your family up here. And so Henrietta and the kids came and joined him. Life wasn't perfect. Again, this is the 1940s and early 50s. She's an African-American woman in society. So things were still not fantastic. The civil rights movements hadn't happened yet. There were a lot of segregations everywhere. Even in the north, up in um, places like Baltimore, things were still being heavily segregated. And so they didn't necessarily live richly, but they had each other. And she had a lot of children that she loved and cared about a lot. They helped family move up from the south into Baltimore, where they had more opportunities. So all around, things were okay. Then in 1951, and a little before, she started feeling some discomfort in her abdomen and specifically in her womb area. So when she had sex with her husband or 
when she was trying to just do anything like that. Her period wasn't normal. A lot of things started happening and she went to the doctor to find out more about what was happening. They diagnosed her in 1951 with cervical cancer and specifically at the time they diagnosed it as epidermal carcinoma of the cervix stage one. It was diagnosed by a doctor at the John Hopkins Medical Center, which was where a lot of Henrietta and her family and friends would go because they did offer a free public clinic for people who couldn't afford all the treatments, or at least a low-cost one. One of the doctors that ended up working with her was a man named Richard Wesley Tillind, T-E-L-I-N-D-E, and he was actually one of the top cervical cancer researchers in the country at the time in 1951. And he had just had a theory that he was sort of in arguments over with some of his colleagues about whether or not the two different main types of cervical cancer that they would see would actually react the same way and be just as malignant as the other. A lot of researchers thought that the invasive type of cervical cancer was more important to treat aggressively and that what they referred to as the in situ version of cervical cancer, which meant it wasn't necessarily into the tissue, it was just sitting on the outside. They felt that that one wasn't as in necessary to treat aggressively and he argued that that wasn't true. Also, there'd been a lot of issues with researchers and doctors Again, because advancements hadn't happened yet and equipment wasn't as good as it is now, there was a lot of misdiagnosis. A lot of doctors knew they could do a pap smear and look for cervical cancer cells, but they would misdiagnose a cervical infection as cervical cancer and end up doing hysterectomies that were unnecessary and other major procedures and radiation treatments and things like that that Talind specifically was trying to help stop. So his heart, to a certain extent at least, was in the right place before all of this happened. But because of needing cells and samples to work on and, and to prove his theory to his colleagues so that people would listen to him, he went to another John Hopkins researcher named George Guy. George Guy and his wife Margaret were doing research specifically in trying to create cell cultures that could be consistently grown over and over and over, something that was referred to as a quote-unquote immortal cell line. So basically what this was is cells that could be grown in a petri dish or in a medium that could then be researched on without having to actually research on an entire physical person. It also meant that if they could create something, there was the potential for researchers to have very specific cell types. So hypothetically, they could have just liver cells or just lung cells and things like that. And it is something that exists now. But back at the time, no one had really been able to create a consistently reproducing line of cells for any kind of research. So he and his wife were working on that. And Talind went to them and basically said, I will give you cell samples from all of my cervical cancer patients that I take anything from. And in exchange, when we find something, I, w I need you to grow cells for me for my research. They had no problem with this. George Guy was desperate to get his hands on more and more cells so that they could keep experimenting and trying to create this immortal cell line. 
So the two of them worked out that deal and Talind was constantly, whenever he had did a surgery or a biopsy or anything, sending samples to Guy as well. So in February of 1951, Dr. Jones, who had been Henrietta's original doctor, got the results about the cancer diagnosis and called her to tell her. And then a few days later, she went back, signed an operation permit, and had the operation to get a chunk of it removed, as well as have radium plates, which are extremely radioactive. But that was how they did the radiation treatment back then. They had plates treated with radium, and they would essentially sew them into the person so that you had direct contact onto where the cancer had been. So they would do that, and then they would also do some radiation treatment follow-up if necessary. So it was a very typical treatment at the time. And she had all of that done, and a sample of her cells from the tumor that was removed was sent to George Guy and his wife for research. Just like before, all the other times they'd tried to grow cells, they didn't expect anything to come of it because so far every type of cell they had tried to grow died after a few days. They would get it to reproduce for a little while and then it would just stop. And they also were testing different mediums to grow them in. So you can imagine their incredible shock when the cells from Henrietta Lacks grew and reproduced like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Her cells were referred to as HeLa. H-E-L-A, which was a common shorthand at the time to keep patients' information away from the research. So here on out, if you hear me refer to HeLa cells, that's what I'm referring to, is specifically her strain of cells that are used in research. And her cells grew faster, 20 times faster, than her healthy cells that they had also gotten a sample of. And the research was going well. They had a culture medium that worked really well and her cells just grew and grew and grew and they were able to continuously reproduce them and have an quote unquote immortal cell line. It was around this time that George Guy started confiding to some of his closest friends and colleagues that he thought he might have actually found and created the first immortal human cell line. And also at this point, because no one else had anything like that, and because it was very useful for a lot of research, his friends asked if they could have samples of some of those cells to use for their own research, and George said yes. It is important to note at this point, Henrietta had not been told that her cell samples were going to be used for research. As far as she knew, and as far as her family knew, she went to the doctor for treatment, and that was it. She had no idea that they were taking biopsies of her to be used for any kind of a research process. And at the time, I do want to be clear, at the time what these doctors were doing was not considered wholly unethical. Obviously, you and I today, it, this is horrible. This would not happen nowadays. It is completely illegal to harvest things from people without their consent. You can't use bits of people's body for research without their permission. I mean, at least you're not supposed to. I'm sure people do somewhere, but you're not supposed to here in the U.S. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations in place for research things like that that didn't exist back in 1950. They just weren't even present. 
And because of that, a lot of doctors would do things like this, especially if they worked in lower income areas. The thought process was something along the lines of they can't afford their treatment, so this is how they're paying me. They're paying me back by letting me do my research on them. It's definitely something that we would consider unethical now, and I'd like to think that at least some doctors back then probably considered it unethical, but at the time it was very common practice. And so Henrietta and her family had absolutely no idea this was happening, and they didn't know that it had happened for a very long time. Because all of Henrietta's symptoms didn't completely go away after the initial treatments, she did end up having to go back for more radiation treatments, but it still didn't seem to help, and there were even moments where she had to go back because she couldn't pass urine. They discovered in June of 1951 that her cancer had started spreading. She had finally gone back and basically demanded they check her more thoroughly because they kept dismissing her when she said she wasn't comfortable and thought something was wrong. And finally, in June of 1951, they did find actual evidence and they couldn't dismiss anything anymore. They found an actual tumor again. And this time, unfortunately, its location and everything meant it was inoperable. They couldn't do anything to take it out. So at this point, they knew she was starting to have it spread everywhere. They knew it was inoperable and not a good prognosis, but she still didn't understand fully necessarily at the beginning that she was going to die and neither did her family but as she got sicker and sicker her family did start to find out more about what had happened up until this point she'd kept it from them at least the majority of them back again in the 1950s it was one of those things where you just kept going and Henrietta Lacks in particular was known for just pushing forward, continuing to go on, continuing to move ahead with what she needed to get done. And so in her, in her mind, at least from what we know, she thought she was being taken care of by the doctors. She and her husband, and honestly, most people who were from lower income families back in the 50s and 60s, especially, again, unfortunately, especially African-American low-income communities that had been based out of the South, a lot of them didn't get a lot of education. Henrietta and her husband only went to school until, like, late elementary school, middle school age, so they just didn't have a lot of the information that you and I would have now to keep us informed about what was actually happening. They didn't really have a full understanding of what was happening. There's documentation in, and, you know, record of the family actually telling people that they didn't realize the doctors weren't curing her. They thought the doctors were trying to fix her. And it wasn't until later that they realized she'd been so far gone, the doctors couldn't have fixed her. So, it's hard to say how much of it was the doctors not telling them everything and how much of it was her family not understanding everything. I do think there's at least some things that were kept from the family, specifically the fact that they took her their mother's cells and used them for research was not released to the family. They had no idea. I know that for a fact. Or if it was explained to them, it was done in such a convoluted, medical-term-heavy way that no one in the family understood what was happening. And consent forms were not a thing back then, except in very rare cases. 
So there's no consent forms from her family giving people authorization to use Henrietta's cells for anything during her lifetime. After death, her husband did end up signing something saying they could do an autopsy, but to his remembering and as far as he knew, he was only signing something that they could do an autopsy. He didn't give them permission to take samples, just perform the autopsy. So it's hard to say, again, how much was lack of understanding, how much was lack of good communication, or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a large combination of the two. The doctors did also try to do what they could to keep her comfortable. There's a lot of documentation talking about her getting a lot of pain medication, and they tried increasing the strength of the radiation she was getting to try to slow down the process and try to at least make her comfortable, but unfortunately it didn't work. Her cancer was just too aggressive and too far spread at that point. Despite her family being told and finally knowing more about the fact that she was sick, you know, back then social media and things didn't exist, cell phones didn't exist, so it still took time for things to filter through to everyone. On August 8th, 1951, it was roughly a week after her 31st birthday, and that was when she finally went to the hospital and basically demanded they let her stay. She was in so much pain by that point that she could barely walk out her door. Her husband and cousins managed to get her to the hospital when she had to go, but she basically wasn't mobile even. She was in so much pain. And the tumors uh, had continued to grow, and at this point they had pretty much grown throughout her body in various areas. So she was just full of tumors and cancer. And she was painful and uncomfortable and just not having fun. During all of this time, George Guy and the other researchers had continued developing more and more HeLa cells and continued to send them off to other people to use as well for research. So even as she lay in bed dying of cancer, her cells were out there being part of research to try to help prevent other people from getting different diseases and things like that. So even though it was done without her consent, which I don't think is okay in any way, shape, or form, she was helping science. That's a small condolence, honestly, considering all of the things that happened to her and all of the lack of recognition she's received for being a part of such a, something so big to the scientific community. Normally, I talk about my sources at the end of the episode, but at this point, I'm going to reference it directly, so I wanted to make sure I told you guys what I used. The book is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it's by a woman named Rebecca Skloot, S-K-L-O-O-T. It came out a few years ago, and it's a really, really good book. I read through most of it during my research. I haven't 100% finished it, but the end is more about the interactions with Henrietta's family and current research that's being done. The book overall is really well written, and one of the things that I really liked about it is that rather than just using bits and pieces she found different places, she actually went and spoke with the family. So a lot of her quotes and interactions in the book are her directly interacting with the family and really forming a bond with them and helping them figure out what happened to Henrietta and all of the things that had been done with her cells. Because up until she came along, 
Really, no one had explained to any of them all of the details about what had happened with her cells, why they were important, which type of cells had been cultured, and just any of it. No one in her family really had much of an idea about all of it. And so Rebecca really helped them fill in some of those gaps and learn more about exactly what had happened with their mother, which I think is really fantastic. So in her book, one of the things that she also did is she spoke to a lot of the different researchers and scientists that were still around. So anyone she could find that was still around to talk to her about the whole situation, she spoke to. And one of the things that she looked into was whether or not anyone ever even spoke to Henrietta at any point about the research that was being done with her cells. And as far as she could find, most of George Guy's colleagues said that Guy and Henrietta never met. They never talked. They never met. Except for one person, a man named Lore Aurelian, who was a microbiologist. And he said, I'll never forget it. George told me he leaned over Henrietta's bed and said, your cells will make you immortal. He told Henrietta her cells would help save the lives of countless people. And she smiled. She told him she was glad her pain would come to some good for someone. From what Rebecca Skloot found when talking with Henrietta's family, I, I would believe that Henrietta would be glad that the research done with her cells at least was helping people. But other than that one interaction, which is very sort of hearsay-ish, there's no proof that Henrietta ever met Guy or was ever told anything about what was being done with her cells. I do also want to stress that throughout the book, one of the things I also really liked is that Rebecca does mention several times incidences that proved just how good and well-loved a person Henrietta was in life. In September of 1951, when she was doing really, really poorly, she needed so many blood transfusions that at one point, a doctor basically wrote in her chart, don't give this patient any more blood until she settles her deficit with the blood bank. So basically she had used so much blood from the blood bank because of what was going on in her body that a doctor at the time, again, this is 1951, but a doctor said she can't have more blood because she's used too much, which is just horrifying to me. But after hearing that, one of her cousins, a man named Emmett Lax, heard about it, and he rounded up his brother and several of their friends, who were all these big steel workers, and they went to the hospital to donate blood for her. He was one of the many cousins that Henrietta and David had helped move to Baltimore over the years. And in her book, uh, again, because Rebecca was able to actually speak with the family, she found out about when Emmett went there with his brother and friends. They went into Henrietta's room and they were talking to her and she tried to basically like reach out to them to say hi and that kind of thing. And she suddenly had this just spasm of pain go through her. And Emmett had noticed that they had basically the leather straps on her wrists and ankles, but he didn't know why. He found out when that spasm of pain went through her because she just started screaming and flinging herself up and around on the bed as hard as she could because there was so much pain going through her at that point. And for obvious reasons, this 
I'm not going to go into the details of the image, but basically that tells you just how uncomfortable she was at the end. So she had fought for so long and was just at a point where she couldn't fight anymore and the pain was too much. Not long after that, later in September, on the 24th, uh, 1951, they started treating her with lots and lots of morphine and not really doing any other treatments because they just wanted to try to keep her comfortable. So they were trying to make sure she wasn't suffering as much as they could. But again, back then, advancements hadn't been made in all of the different areas. There wasn't as good a pain control medication as there is now. So she was basically just getting straight morphine and was extremely disoriented and didn't know what was going on. And then at some point, her, her sister Gladys came up from the South and her cousin Sadie, who also lived in Baltimore, they'd both been spending a lot of time with her. And she told her sister, make sure David takes care of the kids. It was almost like she knew. And then later that same night, on October 4th, 1951, at 12.15 a.m., Henrietta Lacks passed away. It was after this that John Hopkins reached out to her husband, David, to ask for permission to do a autopsy. And again, like I said, he is noted in the book as saying that he remembers giving permission for the autopsy, but he never told them they could take samples from her. So what exactly that permission form said wasn't gone into, but that right there is another example of some sketchy behavior. The fact that they had to ask him for permission is because back in 1951, what happened to your body when you were at the doctor and they were performing procedures and stuff on you? The, the parts of you that were you, there was no law in place that prevented the doctors from taking samples and doing whatever they wanted. But you had to have permission from the next of kin in order to do anything with the body after death. Really strange way to look at it, but that's what was in place in 1951. And at first he refused to let them do anything. And then eventually, again, because of confusion over what they were asking and or possibly being slightly misled in terms of what they were asking for, David agreed to let them do the autopsy because in his mind, he thought that what they were doing was going to be something to help prevent his children from getting cancer like his wife had had. He thought he was protecting his children and possibly some of his other relatives by letting them do the autopsy and testing. So he didn't again, fully understand what was happening. It was shortly before her death, and then a couple of years after, till roughly 1953, when research into the HeLa cells really took off, to the point where they actually started discussing production of a HeLa factory, specifically to manufacture her cells to be used for research. And specifically, they were looking to try to stop polio, there was a doctor, Dr. Sachs, who had developed a polio vaccine, but in order to test it to really make sure that it was marketable and effective, he would have had to test tons and tons of children, which of course was not ideal at the time, and also would have needed just years and years of research. Whereas with these cells that he could test directly, he could get things done faster and cheaper. Another thing, and this... Um, depresses me for various reasons, but he had been using research monkeys. The reason he wanted to use the cells instead of the monkeys is because the monkeys were more expensive. So her cells were taken for research without her knowledge. They had created an 
quote-unquote immortal line of cells and now they were being chosen over monkeys just because of cost which i don't condone animal research either just to be clear but just overall the whole situation back then with research and all of the ethical and unethical things that were done with research was all over the place and crazy and that's why there's so many regulations in place now because we want to make sure things like this don't happen again Ultimately, a production plant was built at Tuskegee Institute, which was an African-American college, and the HeLa cells were developed there and shipped worldwide. And they were used in all sorts of research, and they acted like normal cells, even though they were cancer cells. So what this meant is that the only thing about them that really differentiated them from a normal cell was the fact that they were cancer cells, but they could still pass nutrients back and forth. They could pass viruses and bacteria back and forth. So it made them fantastic for research. They were used to develop vaccines, antibodies, and techniques for handling different things, techniques for how to freeze cells without harming them or changing them. They also helped to standardize research methods for cells and the lab because there was a standardized medium to use. There were standardized cell procedures in terms of sterility and cross-contamination prevention. All of these things that didn't exist before, they were also used in research for cell cloning. So the way that the cell line worked is that a sample, so a little cluster of cells from Henrietta was used to create the HeLa chain, the HeLa line. So what scientists figured out how to do was actually take a single cell that had a trait they wanted, because in this cluster, each cell was slightly different. They took a single cell that they liked for their research, and they figured out how to clone just the one cell, which of course was part of the research into later cloning of all different kinds. So that's another scientific thing that HeLa cells helped a lot with. At a certain point, Tuskegee could no longer keep up with the demand for the HeLa cells, and it was at that point that a company called Microbiological Associates, with its two owners, Samuel Reeder and Monroe Vincent, realized that they could make money if they built a cell factory. So they went to Bethesda, Maryland, and built a factory that was just for reproducing HeLa cells and shipping them all over the world. And after a while, they were at the point where they were literally shipping HeLa cells all over the world in varying quantities, and they even had some standing orders with big groups like the National Institute for Health. Over the next few years, as this continued, selling and shipping HeLa cells all over the world for research ended up becoming a multi-billion dollar industry. And at this point, Henrietta's family still had no idea. A lot more happened after that. Lots more research was done with her cells all over the place. And a lot of different things happened with the family as well. At some point, some researchers even reached out to the family about getting samples from them, blood samples. And again, either because of misinterpretation or miscommunication, the family thought they were giving blood samples to be tested for cancer. They thought that they were being checked out to make sure that they didn't have the same thing their mother had that killed her. So of course they all went and did it. But things like that kept happening. And then finally, a research paper was published that actually mentioned Henrietta Lacks by name. Because until then, 
George Guy had been very closely protecting her name. They hadn't wanted to release it to the journalists or anything like that. And so when her name finally came out, people in the scientific community learned about her. And then one day, one of Henrietta's children, well, one of her daughters-in-law, someone she never met, a woman named Bobette Lax, who was married to Lawrence, was visiting a friend, and the friend's brother turned out to be a researcher. And he found out that her last name was Lax, and then they started talking, and Bobette discovered about Henrietta's cells being used in research, something that no one in the family had any idea about until that day. So you can imagine their confusion and their upset over everything. And to this day, the family still hasn't been compensated that I know of. And HeLa cells are still used all over the world for different kinds of research, especially cancer research since they are cancer cells. So they're used by different laboratories and different researchers to try to find ways to cure cancer. So they're doing very good work. They're important research materials, but they're also cells that were taken from someone without her permission. If you'd like to know more about Henrietta Lacks and everything that happened to her and in her life and what happened after with her family, then I would definitely recommend reading the book I used for my research. Again, it's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it's by Rebecca Skloot. The tagline on the front says, Doctors took her cells without asking. Those cells never died. They launched a medical revolution and a multi-million dollar industry. More than 20 years later, her children found out their lives would never be the same. And that pretty much sums it up. So again, I recommend reading the book. There's a lot of fantastic information in there and a lot of first-person accounts from her children and her husband and her cousins that are a real look into the life she led and who she was as a person. And with that, I'm going to call it good for this episode, and I'll be back next week to talk to you again. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Welcome to the Birchfield Institute. My name is Ren. How can I help you? Oh, new faces. Hi. We come looking for stories. Well, this place is nothing if not full of them. Stick around. I've got some of the best. Threads in the Veil, an audio drama series on nerdsmith.org or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>